All right, Seth, you ready? Yes, one, two, three, four. Hey, everybody, welcome to Fox Hours and Podcast. Three, Seth, Tim Stubbard, Tim Stubbard on screen, and this time Mike on Frequency with me. So, figure you go work. It's this time Mike Bear. Yeah. So, that was, that was our sweet Seth saying, hello, welcome to the Voxology Podcast. It's me, Seth Erie, Tim Stafford on the screen, and Daddy Mike right here, and our little dog Arlo in the background, just letting you all know he is in the house. Also Seth here. Erie, yeah. talk to me. What do you got to say today? What do you want to talk about? Congratulations. That's right, because we're the Voxology Podcast now, huh? Yeah. It's a big deal. Um, was it Tim Stafford? I love you. Chris out of Tim Stafford, I love you. Great job for Daddy Mike. And so far, so guess what, chicken butt? Chick, guess what, chicken butt? And <laughs> I love you. I, I love, love you. your beard. I love your beard. And I love your microphone. I love your microphone. It. And I love that you record it. And That's a lot of positive affirmation. Yep. For me, episode of Fox RC Podcast. Yes, good work, dude. Well done. Ladies <laughs> and gentlemen, I give you. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you. Drum roll. What's that? Music! Cue the music, Tim! Well, that, ladies and gentlemen, is about as good as an intro gets. (laughs) Seth Thomas Charles Erie going crazy on the mic. He practices this. He's so excited for this. At some point, if you hang around him enough, like you don't need me to translate it. Like you can, no. you can pick it up. Yep. But it takes just a little bit because he ta- he talks so fast, and it's wonderful. Um, ladies and gentlemen, welcome. We're so glad you're tuning in today. We've got a couple things going on. Number one, um, I want to thank Lyle and Sherry and Linda and Amanda. Uh, Amanda increased kind of her support and then uh, Lyle and Sherry and Linda all came on board as far as I know for the first time and so thank you as always this is all sponsored by you and uh, we're grateful to just be able to keep it free and keep it this way so we're super grateful for all of our Patreon supporters if you're interested in joining that community go to patreon.com type in Voxology Podcast uh, and it'll take you right there. We also have a Voxology podcast webpage if you want to Ooh. check that out as well. So, um, so that's one piece of news. The other piece of news is we have a first today, ladies and gentlemen. We have a first. Um, my children are um, <laughs> 18, 16, and uh, Seth is 12. And so one of them is heading off to college. One of them is in the middle of high school and not happy about moving from Ohio to Tennessee. Um, and then one of them is Seth. And uh, he's happy wherever there is a Chick-fil-A. That's right. So he's easy. Um, but our week this week started with, um, with our oldest getting into his first accident. Oh, no. And, yep, totally, totally fine. Um, rear-ended somebody and, um, and pretty much trashed the, the car. Um, and then my, my second, my daughter, um, called me. So, so she had been up in Ohio, um, in order to get her driver's license. We'd done all this pre driver training and, and stuff, 
um, you know, driver's ed, and then you have to take tests and get certified and all this crazy stuff in Ohio. So we were going to take the test in Ohio. So she was there. She had one opportunity to take the test before school starts in Tennessee. And she calls me at midnight the night before the test and says, Dad, I don't have my permit. I don't have my <laughs> temporary ID. I left it in Nashville. What should I do? And Tim, um, I have to admit that there were many thoughts that went through my head at that moment. <laughs> First of them was just simply uh, disowning uh, yeah. and disinheriting. That was, that was kind of reaction number one. Reaction number two was, you know, hey, we'll just, we'll just learn a lesson. We'll just learn a hard lesson here, kids. Yeah. But response number three was um, the one I went with. And that's the one that, that says, ooh, she will owe me big time. So I drove, I left the house at one in the morning, drove six and a half hours to oh, Ohio to get her her permit so she could take her test. She passed it. Thanks be to the Lord. I slept three hours and then drove six and a half hours back. Now. Yeah, because imagine the, the scenario in which you do that and she does not pass. Totally. Totally. <laughs> so, so, but, but this, this, this is relevant because on my drive back, we were supposed to have an interview with uh, Dr. A.J. Levine, who is just one of our favorite uh, people that we've had on the show before. And, um, and so Tim Stafford, ladies and gentlemen, Tim Stafford, uh, in this case, he was Han Solo, did the interview by himself uh, and just crushed it. Uh, it left I think this me, is more like if Chewbacca <coughs> did the interview. It's well, certainly facially, facial hair wise, that is true. Um, and and you know, like head of hair wise, for sure, true. But um, you're gonna get to hear an interview today uh, from AJ, and it's Tim, and and some of you will think, why does Mike need to be on the podcast at all? And that's okay. I'm secure in my calling, uh, but that is a very natural thing to think when you hear this, although AJ does correct you uh, one time for the use of the masculine yep. uh, pronoun man yep. when people would have sufficed. As she and, should have. Um, <coughs> I just expected, Tim, that you would have known that. I should have. So that was I... the only, only piece of disappointment in the whole thing. Yeah. But... We're in the middle of this uh, little mini-series talking about people and asking them similar questions about their take on the Bible. And, uh, and Tim actually, not actually, like I'm surprised, Tim does a great job, um, <laughs> especially with the Old Testament is where I was going. Uh, obviously, that's a, a specialty for AJ. And so, um, as always, she has great things to say. Anything else you want to say uh, before we launch into it, Mr. Stafford? Nope. It was glorious. Ladies and gentlemen, so here it is, Tim Stafford and Dr. AJ, giddy up. Giddy up. <laughs> All right, I am sitting here with Dr. Amy Jill Levine, who we have had on, I think, twice, if not three times so far. <laughs> Uh, and you have been one of our, you're one of my favorite guests. I know Mike is over the moon for you as well. And we've always had conversations that our listeners have um, like loved. 
and felt, felt kind of compelled by. So, uh, as we were talking a little bit off the, off the mic, so to speak, uh, we are in a mini series on the Bible. The Bible has been kind of a ongoing, um, stumbling block or a place of constant confusion for, uh, quite a few people. So we thought, Hey, let's crack it open, get some really wise individuals to come in and speak into that. So thank you, first of all, for making time to come in here and chat about the Bible. If I can make the Bible a more interesting and safer text for people, I mean, that's the, one of the reasons I think I was put on earth. So I'm delighted to do this. I love that. I think that's so great. And I think that we could use so much more of that in, in, in all over the place. So uh, I want to jump in with a basic Bible 101 question for you as a professor. Uh, what is, you know, what evangelicals come to call the Old Testament and how did it come together? Yeah, um, I actually think the term Old Testament is a perfectly good term for Christians to use, by the way. Okay. Um, it's, I'm old. Old is fabulous. Old That's is great. terrific. Old <laughs> is the bedrock. Old is wisdom. Uh, you can't have new without having old. So as long as we remember that old is like, you know, your grandparents that you love and, and you right. could not do without. I, I think like it, it's because it's it, if we're going to use New Testament, which we're probably going to do, we might as well just use Old Testament. So how did right. it come to it came together over centuries? So it's not a single voice thing. It's an anthology. Um, it frequently is in dialogue with itself. I mean, you can have one text that says talking about beating your swords into plowshares. Another one saying, you know, you ought to take your plowshares and make some armaments with it. Um, <laughs> it, it, it. It allows you to wrestle with God on multiple levels. Think about things like lament psalms. Uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, which Jesus cites. Um, it gives you laws and then the laws change over time. So if you look at how the law code changes from some of the earlier material in Leviticus to some of the later material in Deuteronomy, it basically eliminates slavery, um, Israelites holding other Israelites in an enslaved position. Um, so you can see it talking with itself. And the point of doing all this is so that when you get to the end of the text, at least in the Jewish Bible, for the Jewish canonical order, where the text ends with Second Chronicles, it's the edict of King Cyrus telling the Jews in Babylon who've gone into exile, go home. It's basically repatriation. And what does that mean? It means you go back to the beginning and you start it all again. Or in Jewish tradition, where we read the entire Pentateuch from Genesis through Deuteronomy um, in an Orthodox synagogue in one full year in uh, many conservative and reformed synagogues, it's on a triennial cycle. You get to the end of Deuteronomy and what do you do? You rewind and you think about what you've read and you think about what you've experienced over the year and then you read the text again. Yeah. So it's a text that comes together with a community saying these are multiple conflicting, sometimes oppositional views, but they're all part of our history and we need to preserve it all, both majority and minority readings. And we continue to go back to say, how do we as a community continue to live into this text and then out of that text? Yeah. So that has been a common theme that um, each of the guests so far on the Bible has articulated, and that is patience and taking time and rereading and really sitting in things. And that seems to be kind of a common, I think we uh, tend to have the, or at least, you know, in my circles, we grew up where the, you just pick up the Bible, open it, and then whatever verse you see is God's way of speaking directly to you in that moment. No context. Oh, that's like seeing magic eight ball. Exactly. <laughs> it's exactly that. You shake it a little bit, you open it up and see what kind of pops to the surface. Right. You um, know, and if, and if you land in the book of Job, heaven help you. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not a good way of reading the text. No. Um, 
Yeah, so when you look at the contextual, so how do I how do I word that? The well, let's move on. Let's let's move on. So one of the questions that um, people that kind of came in over and over again was an idea of uh, inerrancy, and mm. so that kind of breaks into different pieces. And one of them is um, how like what do I take literally, and what do I take figuratively? Some things are obvious, other things are not so obvious. Um, so it, maybe as the first piece of that uh, inerrancy conversation, as a as a gateway to walk in is. How do, what do we take literally? What do we take figuratively? Because a lot of people, I think that they, if, if you're teaching a one-on-one class to people who have never approached the Bible before, how do they approach it? How do they approach the text? What do you, how would you advise someone who just walked in blank-faced, open-hearted with the, the book and just said, what do I do with this? So like a Martian shows up? I mean, sure. somebody yeah, let's, let's strip it nothing. all the way down. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, all texts require interpretation. I mean, basically what texts are are dots and dashes and, and splotches on a page. So if, first we have to figure out that they're letters and then the letters create words and words create sentences. But then we have to figure out what it means. And there's often slippage between what a text says and what it means. I mean, you, you, you might experience that in your own life. So my partner will sometimes say something to me and then I'll give a response and get this very quizzical look. <laughs> Um, and then and then we have this gap in interpretation where um, I'll say, but I said, I, you know, I meant this. And the response right. is, but that's not what you said. Yeah, right. Totally. <laughs> um, and now we're reading a text that was written a couple of thousand years ago. Um, so to try to get that, what does it actually mean is already your problem. Right. You also have the problem of translation. So that if you say the text is inspired or the text is inerrant, then we have to worry about which text. You know, what if you're a French speaker? You know, the King James is not going to help you very much. Mm. Um, you know, do you read with Luther's Bible? Well, what if you're Roman Catholic? Do you want a Protestant translation? Um, we're continuing to retranslate Bibles. That's a huge market, by the way. Any books, people, please go to your bookstores. Um, but if you go to bookstores, there's tons of different Bibles with tons of different translations. Now they're marketed with different colors. Like, you know, you yeah. have the domestic woman at home pink thing and you have the soldier Bible, which is in <laughs> camouflage. And you've got the teen Bible, which looks like it's got Coke spilled over. Um, the drink, not the other type. Um, so... <laughs> So biblical scholars, one of the things that we do is we try to figure out what the earlier text would have been. But since so much of this stuff was conveyed orally, there may not have been an original text anyway. A bunch of people wrote down what they heard. Right. Um, and for anybody who's ever been in the classroom, and you would know this because you teach, right? You tell your class something, but they mishear you mm -hmm. or they misinterpret it. And then they write down what they think you said, but it's not what you said. Right. Oh. So uh, how do we talk about inerrancy when we don't have any original texts? Hmm. And when some of my students do say things like, well, the King James is inerrant, like that's the one God wants us to read because it says the authorized version on the cover. Right. Well, the person who authorized it was the King of England, not God. <laughs> so then we've got even more problems. And, that, and hence we have the new King James version, just in case the old one wasn't good enough. So we're, we're always struggling with what it meant. And, and at best, you, you have to make good guesses. And there are things you can do to keep yourself from going off the deep end. Um, look at what your community says, because sometimes if you ask several other people how they understand a text, you can have open readings. Yeah. Um, if you recognize from a Christian perspective that the Holy Spirit is still speaking, then the text cannot only mean what it meant in its original context. It has to mean something to the believer today. Mm -hmm. um, so what do you do with text and how do you determine if something is meant for just then 
at that time or is meant for all people. When Paul says in 1 Corinthians that women aren't supposed to teach or have authority and they're to keep their mouths shut. Well, first of all, we're reading somebody else's mail. It says, you know, to to the people in Corinth, it doesn't say to the people in the United States because the United States hadn't been invented yet. Um, And then how do you know whether he's just talking about those people in Corinth? Because we know elsewhere he has women apostles and women deacons. And he even says in, in that same letter to the Corinthians, when women prophesy, there's a dress code. But he's expecting women to prophesy, and prophesying is a form of teaching. Right. So we're always struggling with what do you mean by it's inerrant? What galls me is that usually when I hear people say the Bible is inerrant, they're usually the next line is therefore preventing groups of people from doing what they feel called to do. Hmm. It's inerrant, so therefore women can't teach. Um, It's inerrant, so therefore I'm going to read particular text in a way to suggest that um, um, anything other than cisgendered heterosexual practices is wrong. Mm-hmm. And it's all highly selective. Why don't they say it's an errant and therefore sell all you have and give to the poor? Right. Yes. So it's kind of selective. Yeah. Yes. Um, with the inerrant, like with the man, the the how would you word it? Like a divine relationship between God and man, right? Like that. Um, so I would I say think, God and people rather than just God and man. But perfect. Yes. Do continue. Yes. 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 Thank you. Um, God and people. So with, uh, um, like I teach English and I, so I'm just constantly mesmerized and you just said it in your own way, like that, what language is, I'm so fascinated by language. I think it's such a, it's just so interesting. And the fact that you can take a select group of words and you rearrange them, they're all still just those words, but the way that we put them together, whether in writing or in speech can dramatically change someone's life or day or inspire or tear down or whatever but there's still just those words but the way that we construct them is a really important it's it's just beautiful i'll give you i'll give you two examples of where this works in the bible just so i was an english major so i I very much appreciate what you do um i I actually worked on restoration pornography but that's another subject um so at the in the when in the beginning in the bible um right at the beginning of genesis um where you have this this expression this this ruach elohim Mm. and ruach elohim probably in its original context just meant a mighty wind we would say we would use the term god awful as a god awful thing Um, and that's where what Elohim means there is, is adjectival, and and ruach mean winds. This is like one one major wind, right? Uh, but because ruach also means spirit, the same word, and it works in Greek too, panoima, wind, breath, or spirit. Um, and because Elohim is also the name for God, um, you can say it's the spirit of God, or you can say it's a mighty wind, and it's both. Right. Um, so one of the one of the glories of the biblical text, and particularly the Hebrew text, um, is that it puns, and it gives you a word that can mean multiple things. If it, as if to say, if you read it this way, you get this message, and if you read it that way, you get that message. And the message is so open and so robust that it's not limited to a single pronouncement. Um, and you can get the same thing in the New Testament. I just finished up a book um, on witnesses at the cross. Um, and, and when you look at the centurion in the gospel of Luke, mm-hmm. um, the centurion in Matthew, Mark, and Luke makes a pronouncement. Matthew and Mark, they say, surely this man was a son of God. And then you can wonder, in Mark, is he being facetious? Like this guy, this dead guy? Right. Matthew, you got an earthquake. So that's, got it. okay, earthquake <laughs> proves it. Um, in Luke, the, the Greek term the centurion uses is dikaios, which generally means righteous. But most English translations read innocent. Hmm. 
And righteousness and innocence to me have very different ideas, but then you start thinking about what's the connection between them. That opens up multiple possibilities for how to understand Jesus and how to understand ourselves as well, since we also want to be righteous and innocent. Yeah, so you personally, maybe you as just AJ and then you as a professor and and how do you... So when you think about man being involved, like I'll think about, um, what was the movie? Mel Brooks, um, it's the history of the world. Part one. When, when Moses walks out and he's like, God gave me these 15. Then he drops one. He's like, 10, Ten commandments. Yes. And you can kind of see, you know, it's obviously joking or whatever, but the idea that man's involvement in, sorry, people, people's involvement with um, what it is that God is trying to say to humans. And, you know, that's a funny version that perhaps God had more to say and, it got, you know, Moses dropped five of the 15 commandments and then we just were left with these 10 big things. Uh, like, how do you, where, how, where, where do you sit in the tension between like the divine and the, and the human? I don't, that... I don't find it to be a tension. Um, okay. and, and, and I don't think, I don't think we should as well. So first of all, on the, on the commandments, traditionally there were 613 of them. Right. Um, so you might have a big 10. Right. Yeah. Um, sort of like you have the Big Ten. The Big Ten is more than Big Ten now, I believe, in football. Um, but so you have the Big Ten. But, then, you know, love of God and love of neighbor are not part of the Ten Commandments. Mm-hmm. So, it, you know, you look at those. And then when Jesus redoes the Ten Commandments, he's talking to the guy. We call him the rich young ruler because in one text he's rich and in another text he's young and in another text he's a ruler, <laughs> whatever. Um, and he throws in do not defraud, which technically is not one of the Ten Commandments. So you can replace them. Mm. You know, like um, maybe uh, uh, idolatry is not my problem right now, but I got a real problem with not being able to love my neighbor. Three, change them. It's all right. They're all there. Yeah. Um, so what was your other question? <laughs> I get, uh, I don't know. I, re- I think uh, part of the inerrancy conversation has to do Oh, the wrestling. Often. Sorry, yeah, the yeah. wrestling. Okay. So I, I don't think it's wrestling. I think it's more form of communication. Mm-hmm. Um, so that... I, you can wrestle with certain texts when you have to figure out, are these t- time bound or are they eternal? Um, are they, is the text being metaphoric or hyperbolic or are we to take right. it literally? Like, you know, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. I, I'm taking that as hyperbolic rather than literal because <laughs> otherwise we'd be wearing a lot of more eye patches along with the face masks. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but I take it as from a theological perspective, it's God in communication with us. Yeah. Um, and anytime we have a conversation with somebody we love, and the love is mutual, and that's supposed to be what the relationship is between God and humanity, um, sometimes you argue with the person you love. So you might argue with your parents, you might argue with your kids, you might argue with your lover or your spouse or your sibling. Um, and sometimes you win the argument, and sometimes you don't win. It's, okay, you win, but I'm not happy about it. Um, and sometimes you come back the next day with another argument. But the point is you keep that relationship going. The worst thing you can do in a biblical perspective is say to the biblical God, in effect, the hell with you and walk away. Right. As long as you're still fighting, you're still kind of in relationship. Right. And again, that's where the lament psalms come. That's where the arguments come in. I mean, Abraham argues with God. Yeah. Starts out pretty quickly. You know, what if there are 10 righteous people in Sodom? Come on, you're supposed to be the God of justice. Right. Moses argues with God. Moses argues with pretty much everybody. Um, <laughs> Job's only silent for two chapters. Then he opens his mouth and he doesn't shut up for the next 30 chapters or so. Um, Jesus, in effect, argues with God in Gethsemane. If it be your will, let this mm-hmm. cup pass from me. I don't want to die. I'm not happy with this. Go change yeah. the program. 
Um, so our argument with God is, is that's to be expected. And God argues back like, gee, people get with the program. Ten Commandments, <laughs> a few others, social justice, get with the program. Right. I like and that. When, when it comes to the violence stuff, um, things like um, the the Canaanite, the anti-Canaanite material in, in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, um, it, first of all, that's limited. So if you go to Jewish sources, Jewish interpretation of this, they say, oh, it only refers to the seven nations of Canaan, and that's it. So it basically puts an end to holy war. Um, and the other part is because all this stuff is probably invented because there's no archaeological evidence for the, the conquest. They're probably stories told by um, a minoritized people in exile in Babylon or otherwise suffering under attack from whatever empire is running the block at the time. So, you know, there was a time when we could do this, too. We had that power. Right. So, you know, you can wrestle with that stuff as well. And that's what the Jewish tradition says you're supposed to. You're supposed to wrestle with that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Like that. Um, all right. I'd like to spend a little bit of time talking about um, feminism. Oh, good. And uh, so I've, I've read a few interviews with you where they say, how, how would you describe yourself? And I think that you, you put it and please correct me if I say this incorrectly. A Yankee Jewish feminist. That's right? correct. Awesome. And then I, I know you've written a few um, commentaries that are kind of like uh, feminism in Luke and in different. Is that correct also? Um, I have edited 13 volumes of the feminist companions to the New Testament and early Christian writings. Love it. Yes. So obviously this is something that comes up often. Um, women in the Bible. Uh, you just brought it up with Paul. Um you know, I was talking to, I have a really good friend who is a pediatric nurse and she, like she, she knits back together babies' hearts after surgery, like just this insane uh, skill and talent that I can't wrap my head around. And she, we were talking, we went uh, rafting and, and we were talking about like, she just kind of said on a whim, like, it's insane that we trust women to you know, as doctors, as lawyers, as even, you know, professors and that kind of stuff. But when it comes to the church, often we just like, we just don't think that women have the authority to speak into. And it's just, this, you know, it's just what? <laughs> and well, I as think we're, she's right on target. Yeah. Good for her. <laughs> yeah. And so, and talking with one of my friends about, you know, when we're looking at churches and whether or not uh, women are allowed to preach or teach or or hold positions of authority or leadership in the church. That that's still a conversation. And when we were talking, we all we have daughters, and we're and our daughters are an age now where if they are in an environment in which they are being told that they are less than or cannot hold authority or whatever, they're like, I don't want my daughter to be in that place. I don't yeah. want her to grow up in that environment or culture. I don't want her to be told or I don't have that imprinted upon her. So I'd love, this is less of a question and more of like, a, I just want to kind of open it up to you to uh, talk a little bit about feminist biblical interpretation, how you found, what you found through all of your editing and your studies, et cetera. Yeah. Um, what your daughters will probably get now is something that goes under the general term of complementarianism, right. um, where men have men are gendered in a certain way, um, gender being a social construct, and, and women are gendered in, so men wear the pants in the family and right. women wear skirts, right? Because the Bible, the Old Testament says you can't trans, you can't uh, cross dress, um, and then you have to figure out well, what if you're Scottish and you wear kilts, and how do you know? <laughs> um, 
So the Bible is going to give you multiple messages on women. The major problems here are in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 14. Um, and it, even if you limited um, 1 Corinthians 14 just to people in Corinth, where it might be a problem of uh, women speaking in tongues and, and getting a little bit over-enthusiastic, um, when you get to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy backdates it to Eve, right? The woman was not deceived. The man was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and therefore became a transgressor. And it goes on to say, how do women get, gain their salvation by making babies? Well, okay, that's a bit of a problem. First of all, I don't believe in a literal Adam and Eve. So, you know, already that's out the window. Second of all, that's a reading choice. If you just read Genesis chapter three, which is where all this mess begins, um, when Eve sees the fruit, and she actually thinks about it, you know, it's good to be wise, and it's good to the eyes, you know, you know she, she thinks about it, so she, yeah. she's a philosopher, she thinks about it. Uh, she took up the fruit, and she ate, and she handed some to her man with her, and he ate, and the lunk is standing right there. He could have said at any time, sweetie, talking with the snake is not a good idea, you know, <laughs> let's go make some coffee, whatever. Um, so to interpret him as, you know, willingly giving up his immortality for her, which is the, the standard reading, that, I mean, that's, that's an interpretation. It's not necessarily the one that you need to get from the text. Um, we can do history here to say, why would this text make such a comment? Well, probably because the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, are being written at a time, second generation, even third generation of the Pauline churches, where you're having a lot of independent women. They talk about young widows, you know, get them married off, right? You know, right. Um, they're independent women with their own funds, and they're thinking, I can run this thing, and I can say what I want. Um, and the author here, un under the name of Paul, is thinking, you know, let's get these women domesticated and let's make sure that we can control them and we'll get them married and make sure they have babies. Um, and then they'll be busy being, you know, uh, uh, housewives, that standard bourgeois Roman society. Right. But we also know from the very same books, the New Testament, uh, that women are serving in leadership and teaching positions. You can't be a deacon um, unless you're doing some sort of teaching and have some sort of authority. And Paul recognizes Phoebe as a deacon in Romans 16. In fact, she's probably the one who brought the letter to the Romans to Rome. Um, he recognizes also in Romans 16 a woman named Judia, Junia, um, whom he calls foremost among the apostles. And it's not. there's no reason to think that all the, all the male apostles got together and said, Junia, let's vote for her. Mm -hmm. um, she's, she's in the system uh, prior to Paul. Yeah. Uh, we have women teaching throughout the Old Testament. You have Deborah the judge. You've got Miriam the prophet. Um, if you go to the um, the Old Testament Apocrypha, the Deuterocanonical Liturgy, you've got book like, books like Judith um, or Sarah in the right. Book of Tobit, where women are still doing teaching. Um, you have women teaching even in rabbinic literature, which is moving toward that second, third, fourth century misogyny that you begin to find in the church fathers. Um, you have women teaching Jesus, um, which is what I think the Canaanite woman does, or the Syrophoenician woman does. It depends upon whether you read Matthew 15 or Mark 7. Um, I think Jesus picked up the idea of foot washing from Mary, because mm. Mary washes his feet in John 12 and John 13. So, oh, we can wash the disciples' feet. Well, that looks like a little bit of a borrow. Um <laughs> Uh, so we know that women are teaching in the early church. We also know that women are running some of the house churches because Paul tells us that. Right. So they do have positions of authority. So what happens? Um, the more Christianity realizes um, that Jesus is not going to come back a week from Tuesday, um, the more they consider that they're going to be around for a long time, they do what pretty much every other new religious movement does, is they become better citizens than the citizens around them. Mm. 
So Rome was interested in making sure that men do men things and women do women things. And these early followers of Jesus said, we're going to do that. And we're, we're going to do it in Trump suits. Right? Mm-hmm. So our women are really going to be subordinate, just, you know, just kind of subordinate and so on. And that's, that's what you do when what sociologists would call this routinizing. That's mm-hmm. what all groups do. Yeah. And by the way, women did continue to teach. And we know that from the church fathers. They just It's just certain texts made it into the Christian canon and other texts did not. Right. And what do you what do you attribute that to? When the Bible gets put together, I, I'm always trying to find there there so many listeners are, are wrestling with that. Like, you know, you've mentioned apoc- like books that were left out and why they were left out and why why some things were chosen and others were not. When you know certain things do speak into what you're talking about. Um what do you tell people with that? Like the how and why of why some things got included and didn't get included? It's a combination of factors. So it's it, basically when you do history, you say, what was the reason that? Um, right. it, better question is, what were the reasons that? Gotcha, yeah. Right. So some of the books that, that, that made the canonical cut were simply popular in the broader communities. Everybody's reading them anyway. So if you right. said, we can't read those, they're going to say, excuse me. Um, some of them were... Um, were chosen by people who have authority, which means people who have money or people who are ruling you. Um, And some of them got debated. So if you look at books, um, uh, even in the New Testament, in some early canonical collections, there's a text called First Clement, um, which Mm. is kind of like a redo of First and Second Corinthians, only it's it's longer and much more boring. Um, There's a text (laughs) called the Epistle of Barnabas, which is woefully anti-Jewish. It's a horrible text, but it made Mm. it into some canonical cuts. Um, and other books were debated, like, do we keep in Revelation or not? It's weird, but it's assigned to John, but we don't know which John it is. But it says the end of the world is here, but we can read it differently. Um, they debated the pastoral epistles, one to Timothy and Titus. Some of them came in with different names. Um, they debated the versions so that in the Gospel of John, to go back to this women thing, um, that wonderful story in John 8 about the woman who gets caught in the act of adultery and whoever's mm-hmm. without sin, let him right. It doesn't show up in any of the earliest manuscripts. It starts showing up in the fourth century. Mm-hmm. And the church think, you know, should we put it here? It shows up in some text in the Gospel of Luke. Is it in or is it out? So we're, we're always debating. And, and these borders of the canon are fuzzy. Yeah. So we're stuck with what people couple of hundred years after these texts were written, decided this is going to be the canon and this other stuff is not going to be. And whether we read that other stuff or not, substantially depends upon what church you go to. Yeah. So if you're Roman Catholic, you're going to read some of the um, the second century materials, uh, the, the uh, Protevangelium of James, for example. And then you're going to get a whole lot of stuff about the Virgin Mary that Protestants are never going to get. Hmm. Yeah. It's well, messy. It is but, messy. But that, but that should be something to celebrate rather than something to be well. Right. And that's what I was trying to lead towards. I I, I love the messiness of it. And I, and I get it, the impression from both God speaking or Jesus speaking that they were both invested in the messiness also. That there's something about the messiness of humanity and the messiness of how all of this is happening that they seem to be interested in and invested in well in you can't ha- you cannot have free will without messiness right and i it's it's so it's it's a beautiful thing but it has been turned into a uh, like a, a gatekeeping thing instead or or like a, a boundary focused thing or, or you know what i mean so it's right. because I, it, right what we're trying to do is we're trying to fit all these texts into the same box 
Right. Which is more or less what the discipline of biblical theology does is let's let's find some overarching principle that holds this all together. And it's a small box. Um, it's a very small box and people keep inventing different boxes. So, you know, if somebody right. got it right, we could just stop and go on to do something else. But we don't. Right. We, we keep worrying about the boxes. <laughs> Um, the, the Old Testament, I'm using the, the Christian term here, the yeah. Old Testament directly points to Jesus, and it has a purpose. It's all got to do with Jesus, from, from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way up to, to the end of Malachi, which is the Christian canon. Yeah. Um, the Old Testament, the Tanakh, the Jewish Bible, has, it, it, it's got no goal. It just talks back to itself. So right. even canonical order will determine whether we're boxed in or not. I get really worried when people start doing types of biblical theology or even biblical ethics, and they say, and we have to put you in this box. Because hmm. boxes are constraining. And boy, the one thing we really know about God is God cannot be constrained by anything. Yeah. Yeah. Let me ask you one, or two last questions. One of them kind of in, in what you were just talking about, and that's, and this is a two a two part for the first one. <laughs> Do I have to write this down? It's been a no. long. <laughs> I think I think this is this is pretty straightforward. But in the two parts, why or how is the Old Testament to use those words important or instructive to folks who live in like a New Testament ideology? And then how does the New Testament play into your Jewish identity? Okay, well, those are very different questions. Um, the New Testament is the middle of the story. So if you just start at Matthew, you've missed you've missed the whole first half. Right. Um, the, the New Testament consistently quotes the Old Testament, right? So Matthew starts with the genealogy. So it's it's son of uh, son of Abraham, son of David, son of God. How how can you understand Jesus unless you know the stories of Abraham and David? And and then all those other people get mentioned in the genealogy, you know, including the women who get mentioned, like Tamar and Ruth and Rahab and Bathsheba. Um, so you have to know that material. Um, we're also substantially living in, in, in an Old Testament ethics sense, because when Jesus gets asked what's the greatest commandment, he cites Deuteronomy 6, which is love of God, and he cites Leviticus 19.18, which is love of neighbor. So he's drawing his whole ethical stance from the Old Testament, except he's right. doing it as a Jew would do, which means you have to interpret the law mm. in the same way we can have, you know, the Bill of Rights or the Constitution. And we have to interpret what does it mean that you have the right to bear arms? Does it mean you right. can have an Uzi in your house or a right. Kalashnikov or should you? Yeah. Um, so to, to leave out the Old Testament is to strip away Jesus' own roots, is to strip away the word of God. Um, when Timothy says all scripture is inspired, he's talking about the Old Testament because the New Testament hadn't been written yet. Totally. So to dismiss the Old Testament, I think, is just dumb. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, does all of it apply to people today? Well, of course not. Not all of it applies to Jews today. A lot of it has to do with how you run the temple, and we haven't had one of those since the year 70 of the Common Era when the Romans burned it down. But those words still matter, and they still mm -hmm. can speak to us today in different forms. How does the, now, how does the New Testament inform my Judaism? Yeah. Um, it doesn't. Um, if you mean by Judaism, how do I worship as a Jew? Then it doesn't make well, a difference. Yeah, I meant more like your Jewish identity. Does does any part of the New Testament, uh, Jesus, everything you just said about um, Jesus linking back to the Old Testament, does any part of the New Testament speak into your identity as a Jew? Yes. In that sense, it does, because it informs me of my own history. Okay. Um, yeah. So, and, so, and I think people ought to know where they came from, and I think they ought to know a majority and majority opinions. And so, we, we've seen in the United States today so much concern um, over the legacy of the, the lost cause movement, um, mm -hmm. 
But if you don't know anything about the Civil War, then that whole background makes no sense whatsoever. And then you can't have a conversation with somebody who espouses those views. You have to know something about them. Yeah. So Judaism in the first century is is marvelously robust. You have the early followers of Jesus, among whom they don't even agree with themselves. You know, Paul and Peter are not the best friends in the world, despite (laughs) what Acts says, um, because Luke's just cleaning up the history. Um, uh, You have the people who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls, and some of those are in conflict. It depends upon the scroll that you read. Um, You have people living in the diaspora, like Philo, the Jewish philosopher in Alexandria in Egypt, who's writing this heavy-duty allegory stuff. Um, You've got Josephus, the, the Jewish historian. Historian who's who's living in Rome under Roman protection, writing the histories of the Jews. So, for my own Jewish background in the synagogue, I learned in in synagogue in Hebrew school, for example, in Sunday school, I learned up until the Maccabees, which is the Hanukkah story, and those are the one sixties before Jesus. And then, whoop, like magic, suddenly we were over into about the year two hundred of the Common Era, which is the beginning of, of written rabbinic documents like the Mishnah and then the Talmud. So if I want to know about first century Jewish history, the New Testament is actually a splendid source. And if I want to know about Jewish women in the Galilee, the New Testament is the best source that I've got, Mm, other than some archaeological stuff from which you can extrapolate. So the New Testament fills in in for me Jewish history. And sometimes when I'm reading, particularly the Gospels, and I'm listening to Jesus uh, tell a parable, for example, and he's he's evoking um, tropes that you find in Genesis or tropes that you yeah. find in Psalms. Um, he gives me a new way of reading my own text, which is what rabbis ought to do. Um, right. Here's your text, and here's what it might mean for you today. Um, so he's giving me additional Jewish readings, and some of them ring entirely true to me. Can you and give some, an example of that? Oh, yeah. Um, in the... Uh, the parable that's usually called the parable of the prodigal son, yeah. um, which most Christians read about the prodigal is the repentant Christian and, and the, the older brother is this, you know, nasty Jew who doesn't like Gentiles as if working for a pig farmer turns you into a Presbyterian. Um, so uh, <laughs> what the parable actually does in the context of Luke 15, which is the lost sheep, the lost coin and the lost son. Um, it, it, parables, Jewish storytelling has something called end stress where the, the ending is the important part. Mm. Um, and basically this parable says everybody should be counted. Um, this, this older brother who is home, I mean, dad has enough time to call the band and the caterer, but forgets to invite the older brother. So finally he's got to go out and invite him. No, no wonder he's angry. (laughs) Um, and, and there's a, there's a midrash, a Jewish story, um, that says that we are like sheep and God is like the shepherd and God counts us each and every one. And I think that's what's going on in that parable. And that sends me back to all those older brothers like Cain um, and Esau and Ishmael and and the three older sons of of Jacob who get written out of the tradition. So Judah can have the the Davidic line. Say, what are the stories being told about them? Hmm. And how do we see them as part of the family as well? Yeah. So rabbinic sources do that. Jesus just does it really, really well. And he does it earlier than the rabbinic sources. Good for him. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I like that. All right, last question. I saw a um, I saw an interview with you, or read, or I, I think I read it. You don't see interviews um, unless you're watching them. Unless you're watching them. Um, so I, music for me is such a big like it's a it's a thread that you know helps me make sense of the world in a lot of ways. I love music, um, 
And again, with the way that words go together, putting, you know, marrying uh, the way lyrics are written with harmony and melody and all that kind of, you know, it's just a, what a wonderful way of articulating and, and telling stories, etc. And I saw an interview with you again. I listened to an interview with you. I think maybe it was on an Australian radio show or I'm not sure. Oh, okay. where they asked me about to, to intersperse favorite musical elements. Yes. So I wanted like, <laughs> so you led the, the interview led with meatloaf i love meatloaf i and i love that i i feel like you every time you come on we get another little piece of the tapestry and and this was a new piece that i found and i just tapestry, thought it was... i believe would have been carol king but let's not quibble <laughs> perfect perfect um uh, that's my mom's favorite record of all time i'm very familiar with it so meatloaf i, I don't even know how many of our listeners would even be familiar with meatloaf um, but you, the, the, the interview led with uh, bad out of hell. So I wanted, if you, if you could, if you could leave us with like a, a top five AJ playlist. Oh like, my goodness. Um, my son's a violinist. He plays klezmer music. I like to listen to him. I, I have a bunch of videos. <laughs> I just turned those. I was like, there's my kid. That's awesome. Um, so I, I actually do very much like klezmer music. Um, so, uh, and that you can find pretty much anywhere. Yeah, um, I adore Gilbert and Sullivan, and I think I threw in something from the Mikado on that list. It was the Australian Broadcasting Company a number of years ago. Um, I very much like um, smooth jazz. Mm -hmm. That's that's background um, when I when I work. Um, I like Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin and Perry Como because it's danceable. Yeah. You know, so I can say to the partner, it's like, it's Frank Sinatra doing New York, New York. It's time to dance. <laughs> I like that stuff. Um, and I very much like classical music. Um, yeah. I, 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 I like opera. Um, uh, I like Mozart. I mm -hmm. like Brahms. Um, and I've never been able to develop a taste for Wagner. I wonder why. <laughs> and then there's meatloaf. And then there's meatloaf. Which... I want everybody to go out right now and uh, and listen to some. Oh, and and cause... if you want to listen to something else, which I listen to not when I'm working, but when I need to laugh, I listen to old Tom Lehrer recordings. Oh, interesting. So if your view, if your listeners don't know about Tom Lehrer, words like songs like "The New Math" and mm. "Pollution" um, yeah. and "National Brotherhood Week" are just <laughs> they're just fabulous. I heard them when I was a child, and didn't quite get them. And then yeah. heard them again when I was in high school. And went, oh, that's why my parents were laughing so much. <laughs> uh, and they have stood the test of time. Love it. Love it. Thank you so much for hanging out and, and talking and, and sharing with everybody. Um, like I said at the beginning, you are always one of our favorite um, interviews or conversation partners. And um, I don't know. I always love it and appreciate it. So thank You're you very so much. Kind. For... Thank you. Because you take me away from the work that I'm supposed to do to allow <laughs> me to do the stuff I want to do, which is to talk about this. So thank I you very it. much. Always a pleasure. So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. I, I Tim, what was that like for you? Uh, I was I was nervous. Yeah. Well, I'm yeah, sure that comes through. Well, of course, that's, you know, I mean, on the one hand, it's just asking people questions, but it is harder than it kind of first oh, it's appears. it's way harder than it seems. And she is just so awesome. And I have a lot of respect for her and she's w wickedly intelligent. Yeah. So uh, it was intimidating at yeah, least. She's dynamo, spitfire. Those were words that were used. Um, 
<laughs> yeah, did you enjoy it? No, she's I we were I was telling her before we went on to like she is easily one of my favorite guests that we have had on the podcast. Yeah. Since I've been on here. Um she's so funny and so uh she's so quick. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. She she can uh disarm you um quickly in a, in a, in the best way. So I yeah. She's a lot of fun and I always learn a lot when she's on. And it's you know, you have you have some guests who are really, really smart but they can be pretty boring. They're just like academic giants. Yeah. Or you can have people that are really funny and quick or whatever, but they don't bring a lot to the conversation, but she pulls both those camps in together. So it's just, she's a delightful person to, to talk with. Yes. Yeah, she really is. And, and so I thought, you know, first of all, I did not want to postpone her at all because right. she's so busy. So Tim, thank you for stepping yeah. up. Hannah and I owe you dramatically and just a reminder she passed um so it was all worth it in the end and you had a great conversation with aj um there were some things that that were said that i just want to kind of reiterate uh that i thought were super interesting and well put if you don't mind um, please do and uh it, i love i mean it's just seriously the first thing you say is like the old testament and she's like old is great i'm old yeah. old is good old is wisdom <laughs> So it's such a great see the, what I like about her so much is that she embodies the gracious curiosity and hospitality yes. that we want to embody. So here yes. she is, just unmistakably um, Jewish and unapologetically Jewish, teaching New Testament students, and perfectly willing to be in dialogue with people who think she's going to burn in hell and you know that she's a you know um, a false teacher or whatever. And um, I just think that's a kind of a remarkable sort of person. I want to be like that. Yeah. Um, and then what she brings to the conversation is so unique that you just don't hear from regular sort of evangelical folks. Um, the idea that this is a, the Bible is an anthology. I love that word. I've called it a mm -hmm. library, but an anthology, I think, is another great image to yeah. pick up what's happening and i the thing that the thing that blew me away and again these these are just total bible bible nerd points but she was right to comment on the different ordering so in the the jewish tanakh has a different ordering than what we call the old testament yeah and um and as she as she commented um it ends with chronicles and um and and it ends and i never thought of it this way but it's so true it ends with the invitation to go home and do it again go yeah, reclaim so the land yes 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 i thought wow because see i always frame and and we as uh, evangelicals always frame in we end it in malachi and yeah. in malachi there's the, like literally the last chapter, the last little bit of Malachi is looking forward to the coming of a prophet. Hmm. And, and it's a parallel to a, a, a verse in Deuteronomy that talks about how there was never been a prophet like Moses. Right. And the end of Malachi kind of hints at that a little bit. And so the end of Malachi is looking forward, but it's an anticipating something that God's going to do. Whereas in Chronicles, there's more of a deliberate, like, close parenthesis. Like, okay, now we're back in the land. What will happen? And, uh, and I thought, wow, what an incredible 
perspective because I think both both can be true at the same time, right? Um, right. The Jewish nation inhabits, and, and, and the thing I love about AJ when she talks about the Bible, this is not doctrine for her. This is a story she inhabits. This is history she inhabits, and she's totally okay if parts of the story are held in tension with other parts of the story and parts of the story evolve due to different like like the stuff that was written after exile in some cases is different than the stuff written before exile because there are different points being made so first and second kings and first and second chronicles will have different narrations and even uh, first second samuel they'll have different narrations with different emphases and that's just true that's just part of how the thing was put together. And so I, I love that way of speaking about the text and it totally jives with what we were talking about with Gombas. This is world building. And what yes. we're invited is not to um, believe in the traditional Western sense of intellectual believing, but we're invited to inhabit a reality, a world, a narrative, a story yeah. um, that is still being written and yet has so much in terms of its antecedents that we're able to understand what faithful um, participation might look like today. Right. So I just thought that was a killer way of, uh, of seeing that in, that in her, her commentary. So this tickling me right now <laughs> as we're trying to have this conversation. <laughs> I thought, I thought, who says I can't focus? Me. Uh, oh, yes, me. I know. And so, so, the way she talks about the Bible is different. It's not a systematic theology. It's not some dry and dusty doctrine of inerrancy. Um, right. and, and I think that's, that's part of the legacy of the Jewishness of Jesus that has been lost yes. when we've made him into a Christian yeah. is that we've taken him out of that grand story, that grand um, the narrative of there are different emphases and things held in tension. He's now pulling my shirt up and trying to tickle my belly button. And let me tell you, that's a big target, but that's not what we're going to do right now. Correct? <laughs> Correct? Thank you, Seth Erie. Um, so, so the way she simply just talks about the Bible is so different from how it was discussed in seminary and how it was discussed in um, just a lot of... Um, academic circles, right? This is yeah. not something that's dissected like a frog in high school biology. This is something inhabited. Yeah, and I and I just think that's so, so good. And that that posture enables her to hold together things that seem like their intention. Yes, and she doesn't feel this huge need to resolve those things. She can just yeah. sit there and stand in the middle of those things because the text is in conversation with itself, as she puts it. Yeah. So I absolutely loved it. And um, she had a line where she was talking about she lives into the text and then lives out of it. Yeah. Um, so much of Jewish spirituality is, is almost exclusively focused on the here and now, whereas so much of my inherited culture was focused on the then and the there. You know, after you die or God comes back then, or Jesus comes back, then what happens? And so I love that, that in, in, and this is consistent across Jew, Jewish folks that I've met who are academics or who were guides in Israel or who are just practices, practitioners, excuse me. 
um, they look at Christians and just shake their heads uh, about um, why all of the focus on, on what's, uh, what happens after you die and, and why not the focus on what happens while you live. Yeah. Um, yeah, it makes, it makes sense when they put it that way. <laughs> and uh, the one last thing I loved that she said, I mean, there are more, but um, I, I really missed not being a part of this. Uh, so I'm just, you know, amening different things. But she talks about how arguing is a relationship. And I loved that line. Um, that the text doesn't uh, demand our... Um, meek submission um, in, in the ways that we think that it just forces us into passivity, but it, it demires a meek, it demands and requires, excuse me, I said demires, I think. Yeah, like, um, man, yeah, yeah seriously. Um, it demands and requires a kind of meek chutzpah where we're engaged and engaging and, and I love the idea of arguing as a relationship. And you look at Habakkuk, uh, and you look at some of the prophets, um, uh, Lamentations, um, obviously the Lament Psalms. Um, there is a uh, back and forth with God that God seems to welcome. And then when Jesus, yeah. Jesus welcomes it too, the people he responds to, and, and she referenced the Syrophoenician woman when Jesus talks about you know the dogs and, and yeah. uh, the bread. Um, like she, she has chutzpah uh, in the way she responds to him or the centurion um, or the woman that interrupts the dinner party uh, as a notorious sinner or um, the, the woman with the issue of blood that fights through and contaminates a crowd, right? Mm -hmm. These are the kinds of people Jesus responds to over and over and over again. And that is totally consistent with Yahweh's practice um, to people in the nation of Israel that the indifference um, is just as bad as the idolatry. Yeah. Um, but the engagement and the wrestling and the struggle, like all of that is beautiful. So I just thought, man, all of that's really good. I think the, the things I would have followed up with her on were things like we don't have the original texts. And that can mean a couple of different things depending. Like there are, there are two texts, one Old Testament, one New Testament that every English Bible uses to translate from, except the classic King James. And you can open those texts, and, and at the bottom of them will be hundreds of textual variants. Like, you know, this, this certain manuscript will have this word translated this way. And it's absolutely nuts, but there literally is just one Old Hebrew Bible, one Old Testament, and one New Testament that everybody uses as the basis of translation. And because we have so much manuscript evidence, certainly we do not possess the original autographs, the, the originals that were penned right. um, by the apostles. But the, 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 re, the reliability of what's been reconstructed from the thousands um, of manuscript bits and copies. Yes, yeah, Seth is now tickling me and Arlo is barking in the background. This is what happens when we podcast and no one else is home. Seth Erie, go sit down. You told me you would be quiet. Chicken right? butt. Chicken butt. Thank you. Oh, my goodness. I'm just trying to focus. I'm just a man trying to focus, Tim. So, so I would say 
yes, we don't have the original texts, but that doesn't mean we don't know what the original text would have said. Now, there, it, that's true in some cases, like in John 8, all, all of our Bibles will have, hey, this was not found in our earliest and best manuscripts, the, the, mm -hmm. the women caught in adultery or the ending of Mark. There'll be that sort of thing. So there are cases where there are pieces that um, don't fit in. First uh, Corinthians 14 is another where it speaks about women being silent. One of the foremost scholars of First Corinthians says that's actually an add-on that, that was um, originally somewhere else. Uh, and all of that is just fine, and all of that shouldn't scare us even remotely. Uh, and this is the last thing I'm going to say about this, Tim Staff. Um, I'm going to refer to yet another Tim, Tim Mackey, M-A-C-K-I-E. He has a video on YouTube called, oh, The Formation of the Bible, maybe? Um, just type in Tim Mackey Bible. And uh, it was part of a, a, something called the Year of Biblical Literacy that a church in San Francisco and a church in Portland did together. And it is an hour, 46-minute lecture on the, how the different strands of the text come together. And it's yeah. actually the best thing I've ever heard at a popular, approachable level um, that is just first-rate scholarship. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of people wrestle with um, all that stuff that you just said about how the Bible comes together and how yeah. there are other texts that say a little bit different things or yeah. that, that man has been involved in pulling things together. Of course. That's a pretty big stumbling block. And remember, that, it's, it's human. But I think that's when you were just talking, like when I think about errancy and I think about all the stuff that you just, or even the where you started with um, how AJ was talking about how uh, it ends in Chronicles or in, in the Old Testament ends in Malachi and the different inference that the way that that, uh, what it propels the reader to yeah, uh, as, uh, are different conclusions or are there different um you know, you're, they posture you in different places, right? Looking forward right. or, or re-engaging and neither of those being wrong and both of them serving a really important purpose yeah. within like, you know, how important it is to like, I was, I think I said to her like Mackie and, or not Mackie, sorry, Gombus and um, Josh both said the same thing of like, really, and you say it all the time, like spending time in the text, like yeah, being patience. patient in there and rereading yeah. it and rereading it. And she was kind of saying the same thing too. And that it ends yeah. with like re-engage with this. And I think that that's something, at least in my limited experience is something I've experienced my whole life with how we engage the Bible is there's very little, like, I almost want to say it sounds weird, but I think there's a complete lack of respect for the text. Um, even though we say it is the in the name, text. yes, yes, yeah, that's the irony. So there's a book yeah. called The Bible Made Impossible uh, by Houston Smith, I believe is his name, and that's his argument. The this this high so-called high view of the Bible actually keeps us from having a real high view high of view. the Bible. <laughs> totally. Because <laughs> the errancy, like you're, if the Bible can be orchestrated in that way. Uh, differently and but and cause two things that God would be invested in re-engaging with the text and seeing how you know yeah and then looking at what's coming if God is invested in both those things that gives the Bible like a, a, a much more robust 
totally. existence. Totally. And then the fact that that happens, though, because of man's people's involvement, but most likely it was men, which we know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, putting that together, well, that's where the errancy, quote unquote, comes in. Yeah. But the errancy seems to be part of God's plan. So, well, you know well, what I mean? Like, yes. Okay, this is where you, literally I'm telling you, stop the podcast and go go listen to Tim Mackey's thing. And, uh, and, and he even says, obviously people will disagree, but it is the clearest explanation of what the Bible is and where it came from that I've ever found. Well, find it and I'll put it in the show notes. You know what? Why don't you put it in the show notes once I find it? That's a good idea. Yeah. But, you are an idea guy. Well, you know, if it involves if it, it involves <laughs> pointing to other really intelligent people, yes. <laughs> I don't know that it's an idea guy as much as it's just like recognizing, you know, genius other places. <laughs> um so so there so I think Tim and AJ would would look at there are a couple of things they look at slightly differently. Yeah, totally. And that is a worthy exploration. So, um um, I, I can't recommend that video enough. Uh, and listen to it when you've got time to pay attention to it. I know, like, there's one version that's an hour 46 and one version that's like two hours, and I don't know the difference between them. Um, uh, about 14 minutes. <laughs> uh, yep. Um, great point. I don't know if that 14 minutes is Tim telling jokes or, uh, if, or for its content. I've only... I mean... It's just really, really accessible, and that's why I I'm stoked on it. Is that oh, he's a genius. Is that people can go, and um, and, and he's not talking about why it's trustworthy. He's just talking about how it was put together. This divine human dance. That's so interesting. And and yes, and that's the part that is God's design, right? Because this whole thing's been a partnership from the beginning. So of yeah, see, course, I got goosebumps. But just that, that is it's. I, it, it, like it emboldens God's investment in us, right? Like, you know what I mean? Like, yes. it's just like, it's so, there is so much of a dance. There's so much of a, you know, God is maybe perhaps leading the steps, but there is this like, don't step on God's toes or like, you know, right, right. <laughs> find right. the rhythm, find the melody. Uh, I don't know. It's, very interesting. And and to take that one step further, um, participation and engagement and partnership with God in the text and with the text and for yeah. the text and alongside the text, right, is um, some theologians call it improvisation, improvisation. My goodness, English, hello. Um <laughs> like you're, you're, you, there's a scene and there's a setting and there's characters and then you're invited into it to carry it forward. And all you know are the intentions, what's come before, the intentions of the author that, you know, that seem to be revealed throughout the characters. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I love that picture. Um, but it, the last thing it is, is dry, dusty and boring. And right. so when I read like Deuteronomy, I'm not looking for doctrinal passages. I'm, I'm imagining what it's like to be Moses yeah, and to see this and to see Yahweh this way and to, um, 
uh, and to say to the people of Israel over and over again, don't you know what's coming? This could be so good, but it's not going to be. And you just feel the weight over and over again. You sit in the prophets, and there's so much imagery they use that I don't understand. Um, but yet there's this agony just over and over about why uh, God's people, why do you keep chasing after the things that will destroy you? And we sit in that feeling today, right? Yeah. Uh, Gambas says something that, that is absolutely true, but really clear when he says it. Um, the commands of God are always provocative. They're always um, illustrative. They're not open and shut laws. So when it says, love your neighbor or go and do likewise, it doesn't say... Here's how you go do that. It purposefully, like that's why when I teach and in a church, I don't often do application. Like here's your three points Mm. to take home. And that's such a big piece of the church teaching. Right, because the Bible doesn't do that. Or if it does, it's given to the community to inhabit together. Um, But it's purposely designed to spur us on into creative goodness. So what's love my neighbor mean? Well, it depends who your neighbor is. Um, and what, what is love for them, right? There's yeah, no, totally. like, like, and so it, wrestling is built in to the thing. And so, but at the same time, and, and this is what I want to guard against, and this is where I depart from some of my more progressive friends. I think there is stability here. I think there is a landing place here. I don't, I don't think it's just wrestling without any firm footing anywhere. I think there are places that you can step from and wrestle from. Um, And so I do think the text is trustworthy. And I do think the text um, has a different kind of authority than traditionally what we conceive, right? Because the only authority we know of is coercive. And, um, And so, you know, we make the authority of the Bible in terms of heaven, hell, punishment, and reward. Because that's all we know. Um, the Bible influences a different kind of authority called wisdom, an example. Um, and that is, you know, and that is way more powerful. But uh, I, I do think the Bible has authority within it. That is, and obviously I think it's a unique authority. Um, so, so on the one hand, the, the inhabiting of the text so that it just provokes us to churn and wrestle and agonize and argue and cry out and study and be curious and all those things. I love that. But that's not a forever thing either. There are places I think you can land. One of them obviously is is the person of Jesus. Um, I think there are good reasons to think that's an accurate portrayal of a real human person named Jesus yeah. of Nazareth. And then and then I step into his world from history not as the inspired word of God, but just into his world. And that takes me directly into the Hebrew scriptures. And then I'm inhabiting his world, making sense of his world because, um, or at least beginning to, because I'm now sitting at it from the inside, right? I'm looking at the text that he saw as important and authoritative. And um, and I'm inhabiting those, and then I'm seeing him live and move um, in and out of those and even argue with those. Yeah. Um, and so it's just a beautiful, so that then motivates my engagement in the writings of the apostles. And um, with all due provisions of, we only have half the conversation in most cases, 
Um, and, uh, you know, we're, we're very distant from them, but there's, there's, there, they are, inhabit a world um, that we can still kind of anticipate and get into. Yeah. And, um, and, then, and then those epistles make so much more sense yeah. uh, because of the work they're doing in first century church communities, you know? So anyway, uh, rambling on, but, um, you know, I hear and, and I hear her and, and the way you engage with her and it's just inspiring because it's such a different mode of operating and yeah. approaching the text from this kind of perspective. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, the whole conversation about authority and mm-hmm. it's just so much more nuanced and interesting than what we were what we were handed. Totally. And I love it. I think it's so great. I love that uh, the example that you gave, I think is a great example. Like, love your neighbor. You're, you're, you, as Mike Erie, your neighbor versus me is different. But even yep. just like Moses, like... <laughs> All of it is contextual and totally. circumstantial, but totally. there are elements of it. Like when I teach my English classes, none of them are English students because it's comp- composition classes. Ah. And so, you know, they're like, why am I taking an English class? I'm like, well, hopefully what I'm doing is giving you a tool belt to figure out how to think critically and how to analyze and how to uh, understand an argument so that you can relate yourself to it. And a lot of authority in that way is kind of equipping us for a word that I know you love, to be able to critically think and engage not just the text, but our culture, yeah. our our church, our community. You know, it's so much bigger than thou shalt not totally. and thou shalt. It's totally. like there are some, you know, we need we need certain muscles to be able to take up that vocation that That's we right. were tasked and with. So it's really yes. interesting. Different muscles, different practices of inhabiting the text, and then patience. Patience has popped up a lot. You know, yeah, it actually turns out that that um, a a two minute devotional uh, sentence from, uh, you know, a writing doesn't quite capture what the scriptures are trying to do. So um, so let me just say, as Seth is doing more tickling um, on behalf (laughs) of Mike Erie, uh, Nathan and Hannah on the phone, Arlo barking from the bathroom and Seth. Um, breaking all sorts of promises to just sit and be quiet. Um, we just want to say we love having these sorts of opportunities, and the joy has been the friends we've made along the way. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they tied that up. And AJ is certainly one of those. Totally. Um, so if you're interested, check out uh, the Mackie th- video. Um, also, Gombus is doing, he's starting to go through Romans, yeah. uh, which is, man, that is the most misunderstood book of, of the New Testament. Yeah. Um, and, That'll uh, be fun. Yes. So check out Faith Improvised uh, if you want to do that. Those are just a couple of things that, um, oh, why are you giving Tim a thumbs down? No, Voxology.com. Yeah, oh, I didn't say Voxology.com. So I was getting a thumbs down. So visit voxology.com, which is still very much in process. Anything well, you want to add? Even ours. ours is voxologypodcast.com. Voxology oh, will a... take you somewhere else altogether. <laughs> oh, I'm glad you said something. All right. Anything else, my friend? Nope. I hope it was helpful for people. Yeah, for sure. It's been helpful for me. Oh, yeah. This has been great. 
so Seth, yes, we're saying goodbye. Um, Fox, LZ, thank you up. Thank you. Thank you for recording. Thank you Yeah, Arlo's barking in the bathroom right now. See you next weekend. And see you great. See you. We're going to school. Yep. And so, congratulations. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. We, we are Voxology Podcast. We are the Voxology Podcast. Boom. There it is. All right. Until next time, friends. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this conversation. Voxology is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that is supported by listeners just like yourself. If you'd like to partner with us, you can do so at patreon.com backslash Voxology. You can also join the community and hang out and chat with us on the socials facebook.com backslash voxology podcast and on instagram at voxology thank you thank you thank you for walking the long road with us